Well hello and welcome back to The Mariner with me Chris Stammel Major. This episode we're going to be continuing the reading of the book Sailing Solo Around the World by Captain Joshua Slocum. The first two chapters were in podcast 23. This time we're continuing with chapters 3 and 4. I now stowed all my goods securely, for the boisterous Atlantic was before me, and I sent the topmast down, knowing that the spray would be the wholesomer with it on deck. Then I gave the lanyards a pull and hitched them afresh, and saw that the gammon was secure, also that the boat was lashed, for even in summer one may meet with bad weather in the crossing. In fact, many weeks of bad weather had prevailed. On July 1st, however, after a rude gale, the wind came out nor'west and clear, propitious for a good run. On the following day, the head sea having gone down, I sailed from Yarmouth and let go my last hold on America. The log of my first day on the Atlantic in the spray reads briefly, 9.30am, sailed from Yarmouth, 4.30pm, past Cape Sable, distance three cables from the land, the sloop making eight knots, fresh breeze, northwest. Before the sun went down, I was taking my supper of strawberries and tea in smooth water under the lee of the east coast land, along which the spray was now leisurely skirting. At noon on July 3rd, Ironbound Island was abeam. The spray was again at her best. A large schooner came out of Liverpool, Nova Scotia, this morning, steering eastward. The spray put her hull down astern in five hours. At 6.45pm, I was in close under Chibucto Head Light, near Halifax Harbour. I set my flag and squared away, taking my departure from George's Island before dark to sail east of Sable Island. There are many beacon lights along the coast. Sambro, the rock of lamentations, carries a noble light, which, however, the liner Atlantic, on the night of her terrible disaster, did not see. I watched light after light sink astern as I sailed into the unbounded sea, till Sambro, the last of them all, was below the horizon. The spray was then alone, and sailing on, she held her course. July 4th at 6am, I put in double reefs, and at 8.30am turned out all reefs. At 9.40pm, I raised the sheen only of the light on the west end of Sable Island, which may also be called the Island of Tragedies. The fog, which till this moment had held off, now lowered over the sea like a pall. I was in a world of fog, shut off from the universe. I did not see any more of the light. By the lead, which I cast often, I found that a little after midnight I was passing the east point of the island, and should soon be clear of dangers of land and shoals. The wind was holding free, though it was from the foggy point south-southwest. It is said that within a few years Sable Island has been reduced from 40 miles in length to 20, and that of three lighthouses built on it since 1880, two have been washed away, and the third will soon be engulfed. On the evening of July 5th, the spray, after having steered all day over a lumpy sea, took it into her head to go without the helmsman's aid. I had been steering southeast by south, but the wind hauling forward a bit, she dropped into a smooth lane heading southeast and making about eight knots, her very best work. I crowded on sail to cross the track of the liners without loss of time and to reach as soon as possible the friendly Gulf Stream. The fog lifting before night, I was afforded a look at the sun just as it was touching the sea. I watched it go down and out of sight. Then I turned my face eastward, and there, apparently at the very end of the bowsprit, was the smiling full moon rising out of the sea. Neptune himself, coming over the bows, could not have startled me more. Good evening, sir, I cried. I'm glad to see you. 
Many long talks since then I have had with the man in the moon. He had my confidence on the voyage. About midnight the fog shut down again denser than ever before. One could almost stand on it. It continued so for a number of days, the wind increasing to a gale. The waves rose high, but I had a good ship. Still, in the dismal fog, I felt myself drifting into loneliness, an insect on a straw in the midst of the elements. I lashed the helm, and my vessel held her course, and while she sailed, I slept. During these days, a feeling of awe crept over me, my memory working with startling power. The ominous, the insignificant, the great, the small, the wonderful, the commonplace, all appeared before my mental vision in magical succession. Pages of my history were recalled, which had been so long forgotten that they seemed to belong to a previous existence. I heard all the voices of the past laughing, crying, telling what I had heard them tell in many corners of the earth. The loneliness of my state wore off when the gale was high, and I found much work to do. When fine weather returned, then, came the sense of solitude which I could not shake off. I used my voice often, at first giving some order about the affairs of a ship, for I had been told that from disuse I should lose my speech. At the meridian altitude of the sun I called aloud, Eight bells! after the custom of a ship at sea. Again from my cabin I cried to an imaginary man at the helm, how does she head there? And again, is she on her course? But, getting no reply, I was reminded the more palpably of my condition. My voice sounded hollow on the empty air, and I dropped the practice. However, it was not long before the thought came to me that when I was a lad I used to sing. Why not try that now, where it would not disturb no one? My musical talent had never bred envy in others, but out on the Atlantic, to realise what it meant, you should have heard me sing. You should have seen the porpoises leap when I pitched my voice for the waves and the sea and all that was in it. Old turtles with large eyes poked their heads up out of the sea as I sang Johnny Boker and Will Pay Darby Doyle for his boots and the like. But the porpoises were, on the whole, vastly more appreciative than the turtles. They jumped to deal higher. One day when I was humming a favourite chant, I think it was Babylon's a Fallen, a porpoise jumped higher than the bowsprit. Had the spray been going a little faster, she would have scooped him up. The seabirds sailed around, rather shy. July 10th, eight days at sea. The spray was 1,200 miles east of Cape Sable. 150 miles a day for so small a vessel must be considered good sailing. It was the greatest run the spray ever made before or since in so few days. On the evening of July 14th, in better humour than ever before, all hands cried, Sail ho! Sail was a barkentine, three points on the weather bow, hull down. Then came the night. My ship was sailing along now, without attention to the helm. The wind was south, and she was heading east. Her sails were trimmed like the sails of the Nautilus. They drew steadily all night. Early in the morning of the 15th, the spray was close aboard the stranger, which proved to be La Vigüesa of Vigo, 23 days from Philadelphia, bound for Vigo. A lookout from his masthead had spied the spray the evening before. The captain, when I came near enough, threw a line to me and sent a bottle of wine across, slung by the neck, and very good wine it was. He also sent his card, which bore the name of Juan Cantes. I think he was a good man, as Spaniards go, but when I asked him to report me all well, the spray passed him in a lively manner, he hauled his shoulders much above his head 
and when his mate, who knew of my expedition, told him that I was alone, he crossed himself and made for his cabin. I did not see him again. By sundown he was as far astern as he had been ahead the evening before. There was now less and less monotony. On July 16th the wind was northwest and clear, the sea smooth and a large bark hull down came in sight on the lee bow, and at 2.30pm I spoke the stranger. She was the bark Java of Glasgow, from Peru for Queenstown for orders. Her old captain was bearish, but I met a bear once in Alaska that looked pleasanter. At least the bear seemed pleased to meet me, but this grisly old man, well, I suppose my hail disturbed his siesta, and my little sloop passing his great ship had somewhat the effect on him that a red rag has upon a bull. I had the advantage over heavy ships, by long odds in the light winds of this and the two previous days. The wind was light, his ship was heavy and foul, making poor headway, while the spray, with a great mainsail bellying even to light winds, was just skipping along as nimbly as one could wish. How long has it been calm about here, roared the captain of the Java, as I came within hail of him. Dunno, captain, I shouted back as loud as I could bawl. I haven't been here long. At this, the mate on the forecastle wore a broad grin. I left Cape Sable fourteen days ago, I added. I was now well across toward the Azores. Mate, he roared to his chief officer. Mate, come here and listen to the Yankees yarn. Hold down the flag, mate, hold down the flag. In the best of humour, after all, the Java surrendered to the spray. The acute pain of solitude experienced at first never returned. I had penetrated a mystery, and, by the way, I had sailed through a fog. I had met Neptune in his wrath, but he found that I had not treated him with contempt, and so he suffered me to go on and explore. In the log for July 18th, there is this entry. Fine weather, wind south-southwest, porpoises gambling all about. The SS Olympia passed at 11.30am, longitude west, 34 degrees, 50 minutes. It lacks now three minutes of the half hour, shouted the captain, as he gave me the longitude and the time. I admired the businesslike air of the Olympia, but I had the feeling still that the captain was just a little too precise in his reckoning. That may be all well enough, however, where there is plenty of sea room, but overconfidence, I believe, was the cause of the disaster to the liner Atlantic, and many more like her. The captain knew too well where he was. There were no porpoises at all skipping along with the Olympia. Porpoises always prefer sailing ships. The captain was a young man, I observed, and had before him, I hope, a good record. Land ho! In the morning of July 19th, a mystic dome, like a mountain of silver, stood alone in the sea ahead. Although the land was completely hidden by the white, glistening haze that shone in the sun like polished silver, I felt quite sure that it was Flores Island. At half past four p.m. it was a beam. The haze, in the meantime, had disappeared. Flores is 174 miles from Fayal, and although it is a high island, it remained many years undiscovered after the principal group of the islands had been colonised. Early on the morning of July 20, I saw Pico looming above the clouds on the starboard bow. Lower lands burst forth as the sun burned away the morning fog, and island after island came into view. As I approached nearer, 
cultivated fields appeared, and oh, how green the corn! Only those who have seen the Azores from the deck of a vessel realise the beauty of the mid-ocean picture. At 4.30pm, I cast anchor at Fayal, exactly 18 days from Cape Sable. The American consul, in a smart boat, came alongside before the spray reached the breakwater, and a young naval officer, who feared for the safety of my vessel, boarded and offered his services as pilot. The youngster, I have no good reason to doubt, could have handled a man of war, but the spray was too small for the amount of uniform he wore. However, after fouling all the craft in port and sinking a lighter, she was moored without much damage to herself. This wonderful pilot expected a gratification, I understood, but whether for the reason that his government, and not I, would have to pay the cost of raising the lighter, or because he did not sink the spray, I could never make out. But I forgive him. It was the season for fruit when I arrived at the Azores, and there was soon more of all kinds of it put on board than I knew what to do with. Islanders are always the kindest people in the world, and I met none anywhere kinder than the good hearts of this place. The people of the Azores are not a very rich community. The burden of taxes is heavy, with scant privileges in return, the air they breathe being about the only thing that is not taxed. The mother country does not even allow them a port of entry for a foreign mail service. A packet, passing never so close with mails for Horta, must deliver them first in Lisbon, ostensibly to be fumigated, but really for the tariff from the packet. My own letters, posted at Horta, reached the United States six days behind my letter from Gibraltar, mailed 13 days later. The day after my arrival at Horta was the feast of a great saint. Boats loaded with people came from other islands to celebrate at Horta, the capital or Jerusalem of the Azores. The deck of the spray was crowded from morning till night with men, women and children. On the day after the feast, a kind-hearted native harnessed a team and drove me a day over the beautiful roads all about Fayal, because, he said, in broken English, when I was in America and couldn't speak a word of English, I found it hard till I met someone who seemed to have time to listen to my story, and I promised my good saint then that if ever a stranger came to my country, I would try to make him happy. Unfortunately, this gentleman brought along an interpreter that I might learn more of the country. The fellow was nearly the death of me, talking of ships and voyages and of the boats he had steered, the last thing in the world I wished to hear. He had sailed out of New Bedford, so he said for that Joe Wing they called John, my friend and host found hardly a chance to edge in a word. Before we parted, my host dined me with a cheer that would have gladdened the heart of a prince, but he was quite alone in his house. My wife and children all rest there, said he, pointing to the churchyard across the way. I moved to this house from far off, he added, to be near the spot where I pray every morning. I remained four days at Fayal, and that was two days more than I intended to stay. It was the kindness of the islanders and their touching simplicity which detained me. A damsel, as innocent as an angel, came alongside one day and said she would embark on the spray if I would land her at Lisbon. She would cook flying fish, she thought, but her forte was dressing bacalhau. Her brother, Antonio, who served as interpreter, hinted that, anyhow, she would like to make the trip. Antonio's heart went out to one John Wilson, and he was ready to sail for America by way of the two capes to meet his friend. Do you know John Wilson of Boston? he cried. I knew a John Wilson, I said. 
but not of Boston. He had one daughter and one son, said Antonio, by way of identifying his friend. If this reaches the right John Wilson, I am told to say that Antonio of Pico remembers him. Chapter 4 I set sail from Horta early on July 24th. The southwest wind at the time was light, but squalls came up with the sun, and I was glad enough to get reefs in my sails before I had gone a mile. I had hardly set the mainsail double-reefed when a squall of wind down the mountain struck the sloop with such violence that I thought her mast would go. However, a quick helm brought her to the wind. As it was, one of the weather lanyards was carried away and the other was stranded. My tin basin, caught up in the wind, went flying across a French school ship to leeward. It was more or less squally all day, sailing along under high land, but rounding close under a bluff, I found an opportunity to mend the lanyards broken in the squall. No sooner had I lowered my sails when a four-oared boat shot out from some gully in the rocks with a customs officer on board who thought he had come upon a smuggler. I had some difficulty in making him comprehend the true case. However, one of his crew, a sailorly chap, who understood how matters were, while well, we palavered, jumped on board and rove off the new lanyards I had already prepared, and with a friendly hand helped me to set up the rigging. This instant gave the turn in my favour. My story was then clear to all. I found this the way of the world. Let one be without a friend and see what will happen. Passing the island of Pico, after the rigging was mended, the spray stretched across to leeward of the island of St Michael's, which she was up with early on the morning of July 26, the wind blowing hard. Later in the day she passed the Prince of Monaco's fine steam yacht bound to Fayal, where, on a previous voyage, the prince had slipped his cables to escape a reception which the padres of the island wished to give him. Why he so dreaded the ovation I could not make out. At Horta they did not know. Since reaching the islands I had lived most luxuriously on fresh bread, butter, vegetables and fruits of all kinds. Plums seemed the most plentiful on the spray, and these I ate without stint. I had also a pico-white cheese that General Manning, the American Consul General, had given me, which I suppose was to be eaten, and of this I partook with the plums. Alas, by night time I was doubled up with cramps. The wind, which was already a smart breeze, was increasing somewhat with a heavy sky to the southwest. Reefs had been turned out, and I must turn them in again somehow. Between cramps I got the mainsail down, hauled out the earrings as best I could, and tied away, point by point, in the double reef. I am a careful man at sea, but this night in the coming storm I swayed up my sails, which, reef though they were, were still too much in such heavy weather, and I saw to it that the sheets were securely belayed. In a word, I should have laid two, but did not. I gave her the double reef mainsail and hauled jib instead and set her on her course. Then I went below and threw myself upon the cabin floor in great pain. How long I lay there I could not tell, for I became delirious. When I came to, as I thought, from my swoon, I realised that the sloop was plunging into a heavy sea, and looking out of the companionway, to my amazement, I saw a tall man at the helm. His rigid hand, grasping the spokes of the wheel, held them as in a vice. One may imagine my astonishment. His rig was that of a foreign sailor, and the large red cap he wore was cock-billed over his left ear, and all was set off with shaggy black whiskers. He would have been taken for a pirate in any part of the world. While I gazed upon his threatening aspect, I forgot the storm and wondered if he had come to cut my throat. This he seemed to divine. Senor, said he, doffing his cap, I have come to do you no harm. 
and a smile, the faintest in the world but still a smile, played on his face, which seemed not unkind when he spoke. I have come to do you no harm. I have sailed free, he said, but was never worse than a contrabandista. I am one of Columbus's crew, he continued. I am the pilot to the Pinta, come to aid you. Lie quiet, senor captain, he added, and I will guide your ship tonight. You have a calentura, but you will be right tomorrow. I thought what a very devil he was to carry sail, and again, as if to read my mind, he exclaimed, Yonder is the Pinta ahead, we must overtake her. Give her sail, give her sail, veil, veil, moy veil. Biting off a large quid of black twist, he said, You did wrong, captain, to mix cheese with plums. White cheese is never safe unless you know whence it comes. Quien sabe? It may have been from Leche de Capra, and becoming capricious. Avast there, I cried. I have no mind for moralizing. I made shift to spread a mattress and lie on that instead of the hard floor, my eyes all the while fastened on my strange guest, who, remarking again that I would have only pains in Calanchura, chuckled as he chanted a wild song. High are the waves, fierce, gleaming, high is the tempest roar, high the seabirds screaming, high the azure. I suppose I was nigh on the mend, for I was peevish and complained. I detest your jingle, your azure should be at roost, and would have been were it a respectable bird. I begged he would tie a rope yarn on the rest of the song, if there was any more of it. I was still in agony. Great seas were boarding the spray, but in my fevered brain I thought they were boats falling on deck that careless draymen were throwing from wagons on the pier, to which I imagined the spray was now moored, and without fenders to breast her off. You'll smash your boats, I called out again and again, as the seas crashed on the cabin over my head. You'll smash your boats, but you can't hurt the spray. She is strong, I cried. I found, when my pains and calentura had gone, that the deck, now as white as a shark's tooth from seas washing over it, had been swept of everything movable. To my astonishment, I saw now at broad day that the spray was still heading as I had left her and was going like a racehorse. Columbus himself could not have held her more exactly on course. The sloop had made 90 miles in the night through a rough sea. I felt grateful to the old pilot, but I marvelled some that he had not taken in the jib. The gale was moderating and by noon the sun was shining. A meridian altitude and the distance on the pattern log, which I always kept towing, told me she had made a true course throughout the 24 hours. I was getting much better now, but was very weak and did not turn out reefs that day or the night following, although the wind fell light. But I just put my wet clothes out in the sun when it was shining and lying down there myself fell asleep. Then who should visit me again but my old friend of the night before, this time of course, in a dream. You did well last night to take my advice, said he, and if you would, I should like to be with you often on the voyage for the love of adventure alone. Finishing what he had to say, he again doffed his cap and disappeared as mysteriously as he came, returning, I suppose, to the phantom pinter. I awoke much refreshed, and with a feeling that I'd been in the presence of a friend and a seaman of vast experience. I gathered up my clothes, which by this time were dry, and then, by inspiration, I threw overboard all the plums in the vessel. July 28th was exceptionally fine. The wind from the northwest was light and the air balmy. I overhauled my wardrobe and bent on a white shirt against nearing some coasting packet with genteel folk on board. I also did some washing to get the salt out of my clothes. After it all, I was hungry 
So I made a fire and very cautiously stewed a dish of pears and set them carefully aside till I had made a pot of delicious coffee, for both of which I could afford sugar and cream. But the crowning dish of all was a fish hash, and there was enough of it for two. I was in good health again, and my appetite was simply ravenous. While I was dining, I had a large onion over the double lamp stewing for a luncheon later in the day. High living today. In the afternoon, the spray came upon a large turtle asleep on the sea. He woke with my harpoon through his neck, if he awoke at all. I had much difficulty in landing him on deck, which I finally accomplished by hooking the throat halyards to one of his flippers, for he was about as heavy as my boat. I saw more turtles, and I rigged a burton ready for which to hoist them in, for I was obliged to lower the mainsail whenever the halyards were used for such purposes, and it was no small matter to hoist the large sail again. But the turtle steak was good. I found no fault with the cook, and it was the rule of the voyage that the cook found no fault with me. There was never a ship's crew so well agreed. The bill of fare that evening was a turtle steak, tea and toast, fried potatoes, stewed onions with dessert of stewed pears and cream. Sometime in the afternoon, I passed a barrel buoy adrift, floating light on the water. It was painted red and rigged with a signal staff about six feet high. A sudden change in the weather coming on, I got no more turtle or fish of any sort before reaching port. July 31st, a gale sprang up suddenly from the north with heavy seas and I shortened sail. The spray made only 51 miles on her course that day. August 1st, the gale continued with heavy seas. Through the night, the sloop was reaching under close-reefed mainsail and bobbed jib. At 3pm, the jib was washed off the bowsprit and blown to rags and ribbons. I bent the jumbo on a stay at the night's heads. As for the jib, let it go. I saved pieces of it, and after all, I was in want of pot rags. On August the 3rd, the gale broke, and I saw many signs of land. Bad weather having made itself felt in the galley, I was minded to try my hand at a loaf of bread, and so, rigging a pot of fire on deck by which to bake it, a loaf soon became an accomplished fact. One great feature about ship's cooking is that one's appetite on the sea is always good a fact that I realised when I cooked for the crew of fishermen in the before-mentioned boyhood days. Dinner being over, I sat for hours reading the life of Columbus, and as the day wore on, I watched the birds all flying in one direction and said, Land lies there. Early the next morning, August 4th, I discovered Spain. I saw fires on shore and knew that the country was inhabited. The spray continued on her course till well in with the land, which was that about Trafalgar. Then, keeping away a point, she passed through the Strait of Gibraltar, where she cast anchor at 3pm of the same day, less than 29 days from Cape Sable. At the finish of this preliminary trip, I found myself in excellent health, not overworked or cramped, but as well as ever in my life, though I was as thin as a reef point. Two Italian barks, which had been close alongside at daylight, I saw long after I had anchored, passing up the African side of the strait. The spray had sailed them both hull down before she reached Tarifa. So far as I know, the spray beat everything going across the Atlantic, except the steamers. All was well, but I had forgotten to bring a bill of health from Horta, and so when the fierce old port doctor came to inspect, there was a row. That, however, was the very thing needed. If you want to get on well with a true Britisher, you must first have a deuce of a row with him. I knew that well enough, and so I fired away, shot for shot, as best I could, well, yes, the doctor admitted at last. Your crew are healthy enough, no doubt. But who knows the diseases of your last port? A reasonable enough remark. We ought to put you in the fort, sir, he blustered. 
But never mind. Free pratique, sir. Shove off, coxswain. And that was the last I saw of the port doctor. But on the following morning, a steam launch, much longer than the spray, came alongside, or as much of her as could get alongside, with compliments from the senior naval officer, Admiral Bruce, saying there was a berth for the spray at the arsenal. This was around at the new mole. I had anchored at the old mole among the native craft where it was rough and uncomfortable. Of course, I was glad to shift and did so as soon as possible, thinking of the great company the spray would be in among battleships such as the Collingwood, Balfour and Cormorant, which were at that time stationed there, and on board all of which I was entertained later most royally. Put it thar, as the Americans say, was the salute I got from Admiral Bruce when I called at the Admiralty to thank him for his courtesy of the berth and for the use of the steam launch which towed me into dock. About the berth, is it all right if it suits and we'll tow you out when you are ready to go? But say, what repairs do you want? Ahoy the Hebe, can you spare the sailmaker? The spray wants a new jib. Construction and repair there, will you see to the spray? Say, old man, you must have knocked the devil out of her coming over alone in twenty-nine days, but we'll make it smooth for you here. Not even Her Majesty's ship the Collingwood was better looked after than the spray at Gibraltar. Later in the day came the hail. Spray ahoy! Mrs. Bruce would like to come on board and shake hands with the spray. Will it be convenient today? Very, I joyfully shouted. On the following day, Sir F. Carrington, at the time Governor of Gibraltar, with other high officers of the garrison and all the commanders of the battleships, came on board and signed their names in the spray's logbook. Again there was a hail. Spray ahoy! Hello! Commander Reynolds, compliments. You are invited on board HMS Collingwood at home at 4.30pm, not later than 5.30pm. I had already hinted at the limited amount of my wardrobe and that I could never succeed as a dude. You are expected, sir, in a stovepipe hat and a claw hammer coat. Then I can't come. Dash it, come in what you have on, that is what we mean. Aye, aye, sir. The Collingwood's cheer was good, and had I worn a silk hat as high as the moon, I could not have had a better time, or been made more at home. An Englishman, even on his great battleships, unbends when the stranger passes his gangway, and when he says at home, he means it. That one should like Gibraltar would go without saying. How could one help loving so hospitable a place? Vegetables twice a week and milk every morning came from the palatial grounds of the Admiralty. Spray ahoy, would hail the Admiral. Spray ahoy, hello, tomorrow is your vegetable day, sir. Aye, aye, sir. I rambled much about the old city, and a gunner piloted me through the galleries of the rock as far as a stranger is permitted to go. There is no excavation in the world for military purposes at all approaching these of Gibraltar, in conception or execution. Viewing the stupendous works, it became hard to realise that one was within the Gibraltar of his little old Morse geography. Before sailing, I was invited on a picnic with the governor, the officers of the garrison and the commanders of the warships at the station, and a royal affair it was. Torpedo boat number 91, going 22 knots, carried our party to the Morocco shore and back. The day was perfect, too fine, in fact, for comfort on shore, and so no one landed at Morocco. Number 91 trembled like an aspen leaf as she raced through the sea at top speed. Sub-Lieutenant Boucher, apparently a mere lad, was in command and handled his ship with the skill of an older sailor. On the following day, I lunched with General Carrington, the governor at Linewall House, which was once the Franciscan convent. In this interesting edifice are preserved relics of the 14 sieges which Gibraltar has seen. On the next day, I supped with the Admiral at his residence, the palace which was once the convent of the mercenaries. 
At each place and all about I felt the friendly grasp of a manly hand that lent me vital strength to pass the coming long days at sea. I must confess that the perfect discipline, order and cheerfulness at Gibraltar were only a second wonder in the great stronghold. The vast amount of business going forward caused no more excitement than the quiet sailing of a well-appointed ship in a smooth sea. No one spoke above his natural voice save a boatswain's mate now and then. The Honourable Horatio J. Sprague, the Venerable United States Consul at Gibraltar, honoured the spray with a visit on Sunday, August the 24th, and was much pleased to find that our British cousins had been so kind to her. That's the end of chapters three and four. If you just want to listen to the book, it's time to go to the next podcast. If you want to hear my commentary as a solo sailor on this incredible book, continue listening. Okay, well, the first thing I want to do is go through some of the terminology and some of the words that uh, Slocum's using in this. Some of it's quite particular to the sea and obviously to the time that he lived in. The first one I noticed was uh, the gammon. He says he's going to go and uh, check the gammon on the spray. He's not talking about pork products. The uh, gammon is the gammon iron, and that's the thin metal strap or hoop that runs up from the prow of the vessel and runs around the uh, bow sprit. So he's, he's checking the rig base. He's doing a deck check is the first thing he's got there. Um, the next thing is he's talking about the knight's heads. Uh, he blows out his jib and then he puts a jumbo jib on, which would be like a, a deep cut, uh, more of a downwind jib. But uh, he puts that onto a stay, which he rigs at the knight's heads. This is the origins of the word heads on a boat. The knight's heads are two very strong timbers which cross the foredeck. And uh, he's, he's rigged himself a stay there. That would be the place that you would go traditionally on a vessel and sit and then relieve yourself over the side of the boat. So going to the heads was going to the knight's heads. On this occasion, Slocum is taking advantage of the fact that it's a strong structural part of the vessel and he's rigged himself a stay there to put his jumbo jib up on. Next, he talks about the lanyards when he breaks part of his rigging as he's leaving Pico. The lanyards would have been on, on a traditional vessel. The uh, shrouds are held in place by dead eyes. They're solid lumps of wood made from lignum vitae, the wood of life. They have three holes in them, that's your dead eye. And the rope which runs up from the chain plates and round through the uh, dead eyes and creates a tension on the rigging, those are your lanyards. Um, he talks about packets quite a bit, a mail packet um, and packet steamers and things. Um, traditionally, packet vessels would have been ones that literally were carrying the mail. They're on very regularized, scheduled uh, journeys. Um, they were the, the, the mail packets, but then packet became a word for any vessel that had a, a regular scheduled um, uh, route that it went down. A bacalhau, which the girl uh, um, offers to cook from on the boat, is uh, Portuguese for codfish. Obviously, the Azores are owned or were owned exclusively by Portugal at this point. Um, he talks about having to rig a burton, which is uh, a, a way for him to get the turtles that he's killed up onto the boat. A burton is a, a light tackle, a light, we'd say block and tackle, but technically the pronunciation is tackle. So a burton is a particular kind of light tackle. It would be characterized by having just two blocks. The upper block would be secured to some overhead position. Uh, the lower block would have a lifting eye in it and there'd just be a single line that runs around um, attached at the top block, running through the bottom block and then back up to the top block and to the person that's doing the pulling. So this being different from a whip or a um, 
a runner or a Spanish Burton or a tall jigger or quarter tackle or all the other combinations which add up to being the different kinds of blocks and tackles used on a ship. The next little bit of uh, terminology here, when he's on the naval vessels, they ask him to come at home. That means like casual dress, basically. That's why they're saying, yeah, yeah, that's what we meant. Just just wear whatever it is that you can wear. And um, oh, I see here also that he talks about a bobbed jib. A bobbed jib would just be a jib where you've got a couple of reef points set into the bottom of it, and you can kind of tuck up the lower part, adjust your sheet to a slightly higher uh, uh, cringle on the side of the jib, and that means that a lot more water is going to pass underneath the jib. So those are the little basic bits of uh, terminology that came up in there. I really like these two chapters, and it may be of interest for you to know, and you, you probably detect this already, um, they have a very kind of deep meaning for me, those, uh, those two chapters. I had to actually cut and edit that piece uh, so much, like so, so much, so that I had uh, something I could give to you. Um, it was incredibly emotive for me to read this. Um, Slocum's words really speak to me as a solo sailor and as someone from Nova Scotia and someone who's had this book in my hands since I was literally a teenager and then was able to actually translate that into sailing solo around the world. So a very hard editing job for me. But um, I wanted to give you a couple of details there of the of the different words that are in use. But to talk about how this makes me feel, I actually went down onto the boat uh, last night. There was a bit of a storm here in Nova Scotia. And as you know, I look out the window here at my house and I'm able to look down to the water where my own uh, boat, which I'm going to take solo around the world, the private Nova Scotia is sitting. And I thought, what better way to be able to discuss how these two, for me, very important chapters uh, make me feel. Um, so here it is. Here's a recording of me down on the boat. Um, it's an opportunity for me to just, just talk to you. Um, and I would be talking to you as if you were sitting on the step in the boat chatting away to me. This is my thoughts on uh, this section of uh, this incredible book. Goodness me, oh, had enough of that. Hello, hello, let me get the door. Oh, come on door, get the door shut here. Oh, oh right, well, let me get my, uh, let me get my jacket off here a second. Oh, okay, oh, that's better. Okay, well, as you can tell, <clears throat> Was somewhere a little bit different. Uh, welcome to the commentary for the second second part of the reading of Joshua Slocum's fantastic book, Sailing Alone Around the World. This time we've looked at chapters three and four, and I gotta tell you, they were extremely difficult for me. They're extremely difficult because um, reading this book is not just something that I'm doing because people requested it, although that happened, but I'm doing it because this book has incredible meaning to me. So where am I now? What am I up to? Well, you can maybe hear from some of the sounds around me here. I'm on my boat. I'm on the boat, the Pride of Nova Scotia. She's uh, open 60, and it's my intention to take her around the world. Next time the, the season's fair, which will be around November of 2021, gonna head out and south along the route that Slocum took, but uh, 
whilst I'll be alone as he was, this time we're going to go non-stop west around the world. The boat's lying just here at anchor at Herman's Island, which is outside of Lunenburg in Nova Scotia. And it's pretty inclement this evening. I just rowed over from the land. It's only a you know, couple minutes in the rowboat. Swigged my gear up on board, came down the deck and just checked a few things, made sure the mooring lines were okay, checked the uh, backstays were tensioned and uh, thought I'd start recording as I came in here. Come and join you, come and sit down. Let's have a talk about this incredible book. This book was for me uh, an early inspiration uh, to the idea of going sailing. The title, if you were going to be a social media expert of the 21st century, make sure that you put into the title everything that it's about so it's easily searchable. Joshua Slocum's SEO, his search engine optimization on this book is perfect. Sailing alone around the world. What else do you need to say? And so for someone who in my early 20s was already getting excited at the prospect that this could be a thing that I could go and do. I could go and sail solo around the world. At that point, the book I found was Sailing Alone Around the World. And these chapters that we've just read are ones which I think most caught my attention. Um, I'll come to the bit in a second which gave me the most difficulty. Let's kind of take it through in, in the way that it was, uh, it was read just now. Chapter 3 opens with Slocum really setting off onto what is going to be his solo circumnavigation. Now, he could have set off from Nova Scotia, from, um, from the area where he, he began in Maine, and he could have gone pretty much south. If you're going to go around the world and you're going to set off from Europe, you basically have to cross from Europe down to the Canary Islands and then go over the equator about 38, 40 degrees west and then go basically go down the east coast of South America and recurve your way back in towards the Horn. That could be Cape Horn if that's where you're heading to, as Slocum was. That's an unusual way to do a circumnavigation. I know I'm about to go and do one. Or you're curving your way around the St. Helena High, that high pressure area that sits over the area of St. Helena and the Southern Atlantic, and you're heading into Cape Town. There was no real need for him to head out to Gibraltar. And I do wonder often why he decided to do that first. Um, I think maybe it was to test the boat. I know for myself, when I contemplate going and doing this voyage that I'm going to go and do, I look at that initial crossing as an opportunity to shake down the boat, um, kind of run the sprites over the side and make sure that um, she's as she needs to be for the journey ahead. There was no particular reason. I think maybe also we heard in chapter two that he did have some he did have some doubts and you know doubts are okay as long as doubts are overcome and you get towards the thing that you really want to do it's intelligent to have doubts doubts make you look at something more carefully they allow you to feel your way around the problem and, and kind of see it from different angles and, and really make up your mind where you want to be some of the most important decisions I've made in my life I've literally gone and sat somewhere for five or six hours and just thought about it until I had a decision that felt right in me I think when we listen to Slocum sitting at his little uh, sea anchor at Cash's Ledge there, and he's deciding, well, you know, I did say I'd 
I, I go, dangers of the sea accepted, and he, he's, he's trying to find, like, kind of find a way out of it. He's, he's kind of deciding it through with himself, and then he decides he wants to go. But I think the trip out across the Atlantic is his opportunity to, sh to shake down this boat. Remember, he had already done a year uh, fishing with the spray, although he reports he wasn't much good at it, but he hadn't been out from what we know and done some very big voyages. When he sets off from Yarmouth at the southern tip of Nova Scotia, he, he rounds up onto what we call the South Shore here. And uh, I have to say, if you could listen to the recording of me, the actual recording that I did of reading these two chapters, I don't know what it will come out to in, in the final edit. I imagine not much more than 25 or 30 minutes, but it took me an hour and 40 minutes to make that recording. And I'm just not that illiterate that I couldn't read the book. The problem for me was that so many elements of this book really sing to me, really speak to me in a, in a very visceral way. As I'm reading this, uh, this part of the, of literally the second page I got into, he says, at noon on July 3rd, Ironbound Island was a beam. Ironbound Island, he's talking about East Ironbound Island, which is just at the mouth of Mahone Bay, and famously was um, depicted in a maybe not so complimentary uh, play called Rockbound in the 1920s. Ironbound was a small island which had an incredibly hardy folk, literally the phrase uh, I've said to you before, Nova Scotia is where the phrase uh, wooden ships and iron men comes from. Iron bound is the island that it comes from. This is a place where the Atlantic rolls in with the full force. The people were incredible seamen, shipbuilders, and, uh, and great fearless inhabitants of, of, a, of, a, of a speck of land forever being beaten by the Atlantic. That island is basically where I'm looking when I look out of my window where I normally record in the sunroom. So as I'm sitting there, it's a pretty miserable day here in Nova Scotia. I'm reading this incredible book. I have to admit, I haven't read this book in, wow, I probably haven't read this book in 10 years at least, maybe a bit more, 10 or 12 years. I know I read it before I went around the world the first time. So at that point, that didn't really mean much to me. But now, you know, I know people from Ironbound Island. I've had the opportunity to see for myself what that island's about and hear the incredible history of it, meet some of the residents today. And so as I sat there reading the book to you, I'm literally looking out the window and thinking, Slocum drove past this exact spot, 1895, July 3rd. It took an hour and 40 minutes to read these chapters because that's just the beginning for me of where the connection starts with this book. When we think of this book with Joshua Slocum, it, it's, it's drawn out with wonderful little um, uh, illustrations, which as we've said before, are drawn by Thomas Fogarty and George Varian. I think a lot of much older books had these drawings and so maybe we kind of hand this book in with those. The fact of the matter is, I've got a couple of other books about Joshua Slocum, and they have absolutely uh, up-to-date, uh, you know, photography in terms of that they had um, uh, black and white, clear, crisp photos of the man, of the boat. There was, it was no kind of mystery from history. This is somebody who's really only, uh, you know, 120, 130 years ago was, uh, was a real and living person. That's within the memory of certainly great-grandmothers 
So as I'm reading this book, and I'm looking out the window one way and looking down at my own boat, looking down here at the Pride of Nova Scotia I'm sitting on now, and then I look the other way, and I'm looking directly at Ironbound Island, that Slocum drove past on his way out to be the first person to sail solo around the world. I gotta say, this stuff is very close to my heart. The thing that I love about these sections of, uh, of this book is that he makes a connection with what it is to be a solo sailor. Being a solo sailor, I think a lot of people worry if they're gonna get uh, seasick, they worry if they're gonna get lonely, they wonder if they can handle the boat, if they can handle the storms, if they can handle, you know, vittling the boat and the logistics and the repairs and all that kind of stuff. And I think what Slocum does is he opens himself up a little bit and reveals a little bit about who he is and how he feels about things. If you read something like South by Shackleton, uh, his escape from uh, Elephant Island and sailing up to South Georgia is an incredible adventure and yet Shackleton's book is so understated and it's so like cold in a way that you never really get a view of the man and I've actually had to read other books by other people to be able to get a view of the man I'm sure that Slocum got input on reading this book I have no doubt but it's very very sensitively written and that grouchy old curmudgeonly seafarer thing which he kind of writes of himself as being the fact that he's saying that reveals that he has this introspection and he has this uh, this personality which is in itself actually very delicate and and very creative and and very very soft in a way he he the way he describes things he's talking about now he always says porpoises but what we would say now is, is dolphins He's talking about the dolphins alongside the boat. He's talking about saying good evening to the, the moon. When the moon comes up, it kind of gives him a jump. It's right there at the end of the bowsprit. It feels like it's climbed onto the boat. And then he says good evening to it. And we have a lovely little uh, picture uh, in the book, a lovely little illustration with him doffing his cap to it. And he says that many a long talk since then I've had with the man in the moon. He had my confidence on the voyage. I think what Slocum does is he... He's giving this thing of like, I'm gonna go and sail around the world and I'm gonna go and do all this stuff. He's an incredibly experienced seafarer at this point. He's already been out fishing on the spray for a year. It's not like anything's new. And yet he's able to draw the reader in and give us the opportunity to experience what it might be like. You do talk to the moon. You do talk to the boat. You do notice the porpoises and you notice that they seem to be having fun. You do notice other ships and you kind of race them if you can. If you get to talk to other people these days, it'd be on the VHF and they sound a bit boorish and bearish as he did when he spoke to the, uh, the ship that he went past. That has an effect on you, but you still appreciate it because it's another person to talk to. Think about it for a second. He didn't need to tell us any of this stuff. He's already a super experienced guy. He didn't need to say that, oh yeah, you know, middle of the day, I shout uh, eight bells. He didn't need to say that. He didn't need to say anything. He literally could have written a book which was just basically his log turned out and made into a book. That would have been exciting enough. This guy's solo, he went around the world. But he had, took this opportunity to express something else. And that, I think, is in these two chapters where the, the thing that really drew me into this book and has been an extremely difficult thing for me to 
then read it to you with the experience that I've had since then. And if anybody's joining this and doesn't know exactly my background, um, 300 plus thousand miles, probably 80 or 90,000 of them solo, um, twice around the world, solo around the world. Um, a lot of what Slocum is talking about is, I can tell you it's right, because I've been there. And when I say that it was difficult for me to read the book, I mean that I was choked up, like I was crying, I had to stop. It's so close that it takes you back. And, and going and doing this stuff is not something that you're just like, oh, I'm just gonna go and sail around the world and I'll be uh, back at five. It takes a huge amount out of you. And there's a little bit further on in, in this book, as I say, which um, is something that for me, I, 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 Jesus, that one bit probably took me half an hour to read. But anyway, where are we up to? So. Um, He's talking about the fog. He's talking about um, getting out over the fog of the Grand Banks. As you leave Nova Scotia, you have uh, very, very cold water, which is being pushed down from uh, the island of Labrador. It's cold. The air is quite warm in July. There's actually a, a race here in Nova Scotia, the Halifax St. Pierre race. St. Pierre is a very small island, French uh, territory, uh, just off the coast of Newfoundland. And we have a race that goes from Halifax up to St. Pierre, and it's always scheduled to arrive just before Bastille Day, which puts at roughly this time of the year. And the famous thing about that race is that you can end up leaving Halifax, going straight into a fog bank, and the next thing you see is someone's face literally on the dock in Saint-Pierre. So I know this, this kind of weather. The other thing that um, Slocum is doing is he's starting to tell us about he's very, very proud of the spray. He's very, very proud of the speed. And so he should be because a 36-foot boat that can haul at eight knots, that's, that's going some. I've got to tell you, like, there's a lot of people that own modern 40-foot boats who'd be very, very happy to be seeing eight, eight knots come up on the log quite regularly. I wonder sometimes with that if he's a little bit optimistic. He tows a pattern log behind him, and it may well be that that log was slightly incorrectly calibrated. It doesn't matter at all. Uh, he's proud of his boat. He's a sailor, goddammit. The waves are 100 feet high. The wind was blowing 100 knots. The fish was that big. Yep, he's proud of his boat. And the spray certainly seems to have a very nice personality to her. As he starts to come out onto the banks, he then starts to realize that he can let go of the wheel and that the boat will actually start to um, sail herself. And I, I've had quite a few boats. In fact, um, the boat that I'm on now, the Pride of Nova Scotia, she has an autopilot system, a very complicated autopilot system, a, a very up-to-date one. But trimmed correctly, she will actually sail very, very nicely on... 50 or 60% of the available courses that she can sail, so upwind and, and beam reaching and slightly off the wind, a lot of the angles that she can sail, she'll actually sail them herself. Now, modern boats, kind of as part of their design, they are out of balance. They power up more because there's a massive amount of power in the mainsail, and if you just let go of the helm, that mainsail is gonna round you up. But if you trim things down, depower the boat slightly, they will hold their own head. And that can be, um, well, it can be a savior in many circumstances. I actually had an experience on my Whitbread 60 Challenger where I left Florida and the autopilot uh, conked out within 24 hours of leaving. I was heading for Nova Scotia and I sailed a 60 foot um, race boat uh, home to Nova Scotia with no autopilot. Um, and I really, really appreciate that. I really, really appreciated that opportunity 
because one of the greatest fears in the modern world is that all these electronics are going to turn off and then suddenly you have to resort to very, very old bits of seamanship. And I was thinking about that as I was rowing out to the boat this evening. It's a, a dark and brillig night here. The boat's just heaving around on her, uh, on her mooring here a little bit. I'm wearing latest Heli Hansen gear, which uh, is keeping me bone dry, and I've got um, uh, synthetic fibers underneath that. But up against my skin is merino wool, and my socks are wool, and my hat is wool. And in that way, I'm rowing with wooden oars. Granted, it was a plastic boat, but I'm rowing with wooden oars through the night with wool against my skin. And in that way, I'm, I'm no different than Slocum. There's not that much difference. It's all hauntingly close together. If you're someone that sets foot on the sea and you read these chapters, read them to yourself or listen to me, read them or whatever it is, and, and you don't understand what this guy is getting into and how this is going on for him. Well, maybe you should become a farmer. <laughs> this is it. This is the vortex. This is what it's about. This is what it is to go solo sailing. You're scared and weird things happen and you're very, very proud of your boat and everything has a kind of ethereal, magical, mythical quality to it. And that's why people go and do it. It's dangerous and it's hard and it's, uh, you get wet and you get cold and you're on your own and all the rest of it. But also, it's an incredible place to be and an incredible opportunity to be at one with yourself and kind of at one with your demons and find out what's going on inside your own head and deal with what the sea throws at you. What I love also about this, he starts talking about, uh, he's got a real rum sense of humor, hey? He says, my musical talent had never bred envy in others, but out on the Atlantic to realize what it meant, you should have heard me sing. You should have seen the porpoises leap when I pitched my voice for the waves and the sea and all that was in it. I've got to say, I'm, I'm a singer. I, I, uh, <laughs> not someone you're ever going to pay to go and see. I love to sing, and when things get bad, I do turn into the, the like onboard jukebox. And um, if you don't know it, dolphins love to be talked to, whistled to, sung to, whatever it is. I sailed with a chap called Sandy Ma uh, when I first went to see one of the most inspirational seafarers I've ever had the great luck to share a watch with. And um, Sandy taught me that um, you can whistle to the dolphins. And I thought, jeepers now, who, who's this old kook that's telling me about these, uh, these giant fish that are talking to me? And then he would whistle to them, and you would see the increased energy in their leaping, and they'd be closer to the boat, and there'd be more of them, and they seem a lot more kind of excited. And many, many times since, with little whistles or the whistles on life jackets or whatever, think about it, it's kind of like up in the kind of pitches that maybe they can pick up when they're closer to the sea surface. Also, if you're inside the boat and you start to sing or the engine's running or the radio's on or something's happening, the dolphins do like hear what's going on inside the boat. And if you're quiet inside the boat, you can hear them. So for him to be saying, yeah, I pitched my voice at the sea and they, they danced and they jumped for me even if no one else wants to hear it, um, again, we get to see the character of the man. We get to see the kind of spirit of the man and we get to understand that this person who is out on the sea doing this stuff, he really knows the sea. He really loves the sea. And whilst he is coming to terms with what it is to be on the boat, he is very much in love with the situation that he's in. I also, I know 
you know, jeepers, you know, it's the hardest thing in the world to try and find something in a book when you're trying to talk to people. Like, it's no better, I tell you, when I'm doing it right now. But there's a bit in this when he's talking about um, him being the chef on board and the fact that uh, he never had a problem with the chef and the chef never had a problem with him. Like, he's got a great sense of humor. So he comes up alongside uh, a ship um, as he's in the middle of his uh, voyage. It's the, the Lava Guesa of Vigo. And I actually looked up what that means. It literally means of Vigo. La Viguesa means of Vigo. Now, as I was looking up the pronunciation of La Viguesa, I found that uh, there was a little discussion on a notice board on yachts and yachting, I think it was. And somebody that was writing there from Vigo in Spain was saying that his grandfather had told him that he was actually on watch on this vessel when it came alongside uh, Slocum at sea. Now, I have a feeling <laughs> that... Uh, you know, there'd be a lot of people in the world who would know that Slocum had gone and done this thing. And so it'd be very easy, perhaps, for stories to get extended and, uh, and kind of improved upon over time. And that there was probably quite a lot of people that were on watch when uh, their ship came alongside Slocum. But either or, Slocum says that it was a barkentine that he came alongside um, and that the other person said that it was actually a three-masted Galento with square soles on its foremast, which would look exactly like a Barkentine. He did also say that they were coming round from Philadelphia with a cargo of oil. So, I don't know, maybe it's true. It's pretty specific, isn't it? But, again, what we get to understand is that this book of Slocum's, it's not, uh, it's not a fiction, it's not a fairy tale. He is a professional seafarer who's been out and about on the seas for years and years. And in his log, he is reporting every ship that he comes alongside. And then that comes out in the book. And I love that because it means also that a lot of the other things that we get to read about how he feels and the things that he sees and the things that he does, they're also probably quite um, real recollections and reproductions of what actually happened on his voyage. It is a fair and credible non-fiction book it, it, it's it, it's real it, it happened he sailed past my house <laughs> um he says uh he's got some funny things to say again another reason i had to slow down when i was uh when i was uh, reading this is he says things like i think he was a good man as spaniards go like it's obviously from another world but he says um that uh the guy uh, obviously did not have uh a, a lot of understanding or a spiritual understanding of what Slocum was doing. They passed him a bottle of wine, which was very much appreciated by Slocum. But then when the mate of that vessel points out to the captain that he's alone, the captain just crosses himself and goes below. It reminds us the fact that sailing alone, even now it's very rare, but sailing alone at that time was totally unheard of. He would have been a, a very strange curiosity for any professional seafarers at that time. And no wonder the man crossed himself from them and went below. I love also in this uh, next bit, he meets the uh, the bark Java out of Glasgow that's uh, from Peru to Queenstown is what he says. He's going to uh, the south of Ireland, what's now Cork, and he's uh, going there for orders. So he's dropped off his load and he's headed back to Ireland to go and get a new load and new orders. And uh, this chap obviously not so... Uh, happy to to speak to Slocum and you still get that today when you're on VHF sometimes you'll hail a ship on the VHF because you want to pass a message because you want to get the weather forecast because there's some kind of crossing situation you want to clarify what's happening and you'll get a very very spirited positive conversation from someone who's on watch and happy to talk to you 
Other times, it's almost impossible to raise them unless literally you recite back to them their uh, IMO number, their IMO, their International Maritime Organization number, and their MMSI, their Mobile Maritime Safety Information number. If you quote those numbers to a ship that's not responding to your hail, they'll sometimes come back to you and then sometimes start talking to you. But when they do that, when you've kind of like shook the, the hive and, and got them irritated and made them come on, they're just as boorish and bearish as this guy is on this book. But Slocum, being the professional he is, he's got something to uh, say to him. The captain says, how long has it been calm about here? Uh, and, <laughs> and Slocum shouts back at him, don't know, captain. I haven't been here that long. <laughs> the captain on the uh, other boat, not impressed to meet up with uh, Slocum, I don't think. He again then tells us about another ship. And sometimes, you know, these older books, they do have a somewhat repetitious style. But you have to take it for what it is. It's a, it's a different time. And now everything has to be like popcorn worthy. You know, if you're not like pounding popcorn into your face when you're watching a film, then something's wrong. And a book has to be like every page is out. It's a, it's a page turner, you know, two thumbs up from this. It was an action-packed thriller. It was, this is a... a you know what's amazing about this? The guy's sailing solo around the world. He doesn't have to like make every single thing in so exciting. But then he tells us about the Olympia and his point is kind of interesting. It's a steamship. And uh, at first, of course, I thought it was the Olympic. The Olympic was the first of the Olympic class ships that were built by Harland and Wolf for Cunard. The second in that class was the Titanic. So when he said Olympia for a second, I was thinking, hang on, hang on, what year is this? So no, it's not the Olympic. It's the Olympia. And his point is that he feels that they are too precise in their navigation, that their feeling of precision in their nav is actually something that could lead to them having a problem. He says, I have the feeling still that the captain was just a little too precise in his reckoning. That may be all well enough. However, where then, where there is plenty of sea room, but overconfidence, I believe, was the cause of the disaster to the liner Atlantic and many more like her. The captain knew too well where he was. I think there's something to be said there. If you kind of don't know where you are, or you're a little bit unsure, think about how you'd feel. Think about how good the watch would be that you would uh, be, be calling for. Think about how keen you would be for, for star sights, for looking at the weather, for any, any kind of land that came in sight, any kind of other vessels. Think how much more on it you would be if you didn't really kind of particularly know where you are. Flip forward to now, as I'm sitting here inside the boat, and I look at a, a dashboard which is just arrayed with, uh, with navigation information, with satellites being connected to this boat that then tell me within literally meters where I am on the surface of the planet and not just one but as I look here now there's probably four different GPS signals being uh, displayed in some fashion or other on this boat from four different antennas plus I've got a, a gyroscopic compass in fact I've got two because there's a backup on the back of it um, I've got every possible piece of information I have and so my feeling of security is absolute when I'm at sea now, we all discuss the fact that, well, what happens if it stops? What are you going to do then? Well, that's one thing. But what also of the fact that I may end up start just driving the boat around like it's a computer game and not really looking at the details of things? Slocum's point is that maybe a little bit of, a little bit of uh, inaccuracy 
might lead to better seamanship. Now, I would in no way uh, get behind any kind of campaign to reduce the accuracy of navigation on a vessel. But I think it's important when we look at these electronic devices and realize that we can end up being subject to the cocoon effect, and that could really put us in a lot of danger. The cocoon effect is something we often talk about in cars. The fact that you're in there and you've got your heated seats and you've got your music on and you've got your coffee and you've, it's maybe now it's on cruise control and maybe these days it's got lane keeping and it's got all these things, a radar that's telling you how far you are for another vessel, and uh, another vessel, another car. You know, there's a cocoon that you're wrapped up in. It's all great. And then something happens and wow, that cocoon breaks open and breaks apart and you're having an accident and the world just got very, very real. It happens on boats as well. You get so slick at something that you don't even see the mistake coming. I think there's a little pause for thought there uh, from these words coming to us from 125 years ago. He then gets to his first major landfall. He gets to the Azores. Now the Azores are created as part of the Great Atlantic Ridge, a massive, uh, area of the world's tectonic plates where material is being made, pumped up to the surface and spreading apart and forever building more land uh, under the seabed. But in the Azores, it's up right at the surface and we have this incredible individual solitary archipelago of islands right in the middle of the Atlantic. And obviously for any seafarer crossing the Atlantic, a fantastic sight to behold. Slocum, we should note, is navigating using the tin clock which he used, uh, which he bought uh, down there in Yarmouth. Remember, he only paid a buck for it because the, the, the glass on the face of it was smashed. So he is navigating now out from Nova Scotia and he's just hit the Azores pretty accurately. That's not to say that He's not beyond saying, hey, you know what? I had to sail up and down for two days to, uh, to try and find the Azores. But his time across the Atlantic is fast enough that he can't really spend that much time driving around and around and around. This is someone who's been driving um, big, fully rigged ships, uh, making quick runs point to point to deliver goods. He's a professional seafarer who's got to be there on time. What a display of navigation to be able to set off from Nova Scotia with a tin clock and hit the Azores that accurately. And later on, as we're gonna read, as you heard in the, the discussion just then, he hits uh, Gibraltar without any problems whatsoever. He's doing that with a tin clock. And I, I will take time as I move on in the reading of this to try and find out exactly what it is that he's doing. How exactly do you navigate with only a tin clock? Because he's not talking particularly about uh, um, his sexton work, he's not particularly talking about... Uh, now, he would not have had logarithmic tables. The way that we do astronav these days is uh, descended to us from the early age of uh, air flight, of, of aeroplanes. They used to have those little bubbles on the top, and they would do their astronav as they were moving along. That's how they got from A to B to do commercial stuff and to do military things. The key was that navigation took a massive step forward because suddenly they realized, man, these planes are moving that fast and we have to be accurate. We've got to have a way of doing this faster. So logarithmic tables were developed where you could take your sextant reading and then you could apply it in a book to a series of values, do some, uh, some working out basically on a piece of paper and then you could arrive at a position. But Slocum predates that. So he would actually be using um, spherical trigonometry to work out his position. 
So whatever you think is astronav now, you gotta like, you gotta logarithmically increase the complication of what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's way more difficult. Spherical trigonometry. I don't even know exactly how that works, but I'll go and I'll find that out, and we'll talk about that in another one. I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about his navigation, but um, it is not a small thing to have just found an archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic. And he also has a wonderful way that he talks about uh, what he experienced on the island. Clearly, a lot of people knew that Slocum was setting off doing this thing. He obviously had got it out into the world's press, and that had then... Um, leached out into the world and a lot of the places that he goes to people already know who he is and what he's doing he meets up with people in um in the azores like that and he gets uh, taken out and about and and uh um shown the place and he has again a lovely way of finding the details in people's um in what people are telling him i love the fact that he <laughs> it's something that we all know right his uh, this guy that helps him out there in uh, fayal um his friend says to him, uh, Antonio, he says to him, do you know John Wilson of Boston? <laughs> and Slocum's like, well, I know a John Wilson, but not a Boston. And then uh, Antonio further clarifies it by saying he had one daughter and one son. Oh, that's right. So there's John Wilson of Boston with a son and a daughter. Um, but then, you know, the humor of uh, Slocum is not to be underestimated. And that's that's a great part of why I fell in love with Nova Scotia. The people here have got a really good sense of humor. And so <laughs> Slocum adds into his book, which is being published to go around the world on the return from his voyage. Uh, <laughs> if this reaches the right John Wilson, I am told to say that Antonio of Pico remembers you. <laughs> How fantastic. So he sets off from Horta then, and um, he's... He, he sets off into a, a storm. And um, this for me, chapter four of this book is where uh, the, the real emotion of this book kicks in. And uh, that's why I wanted to come out to the, the boat this evening to, to, to talk to you about this. Um, <clears throat> the boat that I'm sitting on now is the sister ship of the Open 60 that I took solo around the world. And... I don't know if any of you ever saw the documentary that was done about it called um, Hell on High Water. Um, it was on ESPN and Star and Discovery, all those things for a while in like 2010, 2011. But it was a very difficult voyage for me. I'd already sailed once around the world and I, there was only eight weeks between um, the voyages. And um, when I set off, I set off into uh, a very complex situation. I hadn't sailed solo very much before. I'd never sailed an open 60. I'd driven 60, 70 foot race boats around the world, but I never sailed an open 60 on my own. It was a massively steep learning curve. Um, I had someone who had already uh, waited for me while I'd gone off and circumnavigated the world. But as any sensible person would do, she had decided that that relationship needed to come to an end because I was just somebody who was forever away. That's not how any relationship should ever be. And so I set off having caused the destruction of that relationship. My father was very, very ill with um, brain cancer. And, uh, and to be absolutely honest, I was already burnt out from working for a year, taking a crew of 20 amateurs around the world in the clipper race. So emotionally, I was already at a very difficult 
place in my head. And then the physical exertion of being on the boat, the huge fear and trepidation and all the mistakes I made um, breaking the boat and learning how the boat sailed. Plus, of course, this ongoing anguish. I wasn't fair to the person I left at home. Um, it wasn't fair that I was out there, which is causing my mother and father a, a huge amount of anguish, as you can understand. And my father, because of the brain surgery he'd had, was not really able to um, rationalize uh, what was happening emotionally for him. So it was a mess. It was a mess. And so this boat that I'm on now, it, it's to say the sister ship of that boat, it's different in many, many ways. It's uh, this one's painted white inside and the other one was gray. And I think in a way that kind of, I chose to do that because it, it's kind of how I feel about it. I feel lighter, I feel brighter, I feel more positive this time. This boat is, um, I've been through every inch of this boat. I've sailed it already a good way. I've got all the experience of being on the other vessel. I'm very, very happy with this boat, with how it works. I've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles more experience now than I have before. So I'm in here in a place I know, it's a new, lighter, brighter, positive version, and I feel very much more in control. But when I'm in here, I remember where I was at. And I do wonder often when I think of Slocum, and I think, you know, he's an older guy. He's been involved in all sorts of things that have happened at sea. He's had great ships and lost great ships. He's now worked for a year or so, putting the spray back together again, and then he's setting off to go and do this thing why was he doing it? What on earth was he doing it for? Really, think about it. What was he doing it for? Why would some old codger like seafarer suddenly up and decide he's going to take a 36-foot boat and sail solo around the world? Slocum had a passion and he had a love for the sea. But as much as something was drawing him to the sea, I believe something was pushing him to the sea. And that is the two sides of a very deadly blade that you have to play with when you go and do things completely on your own. And we've already learned that he had uh, some doubts about what he was doing. And I've already put forward my thought that perhaps he set off and went across the Atlantic first because he wanted to kind of like think about it a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm actually looking at the, the, the lovely illustration which is here on page 35 showing his route. And indeed, he sets off from Sable Island, takes a very straight route to the Azores and then we cut into chapter four as he's leaving the Azores and he gets into what is his I think first proper big at sea storm with the spray <clears throat> and therein starts a sequence of events which have always been totally haunting for me as I sit here now in the uh, I'm sitting in the cabin of the boat and the, the red lights are on <clears throat> all of the navigation board ahead of me as I say is lit up with all the things there and the door well let's open her up so this is pretty much how the boat is when I'm at sea I sit kind of in the center of the boat here I look at the navigation panel I look out at the the helm and at the sea I look out through the windows on the side of the boat and I look up through the windows above me of which I can see the mainsail through. I'm watching the speed, I'm watching the wind, I'm feeling the boat, I'm listening to the boat. The wind's in the rigging, I can hear the tension in the backstay, I can hear the halyards soaring away and stretching and moving, I can feel the, the sails as they pull. And for anybody who has a lot of experience on a boat, I can tell where this boat is 
within a couple of degrees of the wind. And anybody that's sailed with me with Spartan Ocean Racing knows that I can be inside the boat and then suddenly my head pops up because you're a couple of degrees off course. or so my hand will come up and just point up or point down wherever you need to go. As I sit in the middle of this boat, after what we worked out on one of the previous podcasts is about 40,000 hours at sea, I can feel what's going on around me in this boat. What happens when you're on your own is that the boat itself starts to somewhat come to life and there ends up being this connection with the boat. So we feel that the boat has got its own desire to, to, to leap clear of the waves and to, to, to pull and to go fast and to overtake things. But sometimes, sometimes there's something more than that. Sometimes there's a feeling that someone's helping. And that's what happens in chapter four. Slocum takes on some cheese and some plums in the Azores and uh, decides to make himself a little bit of something up and eat it. And within a very small amount of time, he's doubled up with cramps. He says the wind, which was already a smart breeze, was increasing somewhat with a heavy sky to the southwest. Reefs had been turned out and I must turn them in again somehow. Between cramps, I got the mainsail down hauled out the earrings as best I could and tied away point by point in the double reef. There being sea room, I should, in strict prudence, have made all snug and gone down at once to my cabin. Okay, so it's the wind's increasing and he's got quite a lot of sail up, but he decides to kind of let it go. We all know that food poisoning and that, it's so crippling, it's so so hard on you when you're at home if you're on a boat at sea and you're getting thrashed around and things you need to do like where's the point where you just go sod this and just go to the cabin and slocum gets to that point he says i'm a careful man at sea but this night in the coming storm i swayed up my sails which reef though they were were still too much in such heavy weather and i saw to it that the sheets were securely belayed in a word i should have laid two but did not I gave her the double reef mainsail and the whole jib instead and set her on course. And then I went below and threw myself upon the cabin floor in great pain. Slocum's in a very difficult position now. He is basically unable to help. He's the first guy ever to be in a situation where there's nobody else on the boat. And now he can't go and do something and help the boat. He knows what he should have done and there's nothing he could do. And that's when help arrives. Now, in the recording that I've done there, which maybe one day we'll make into an audio book or something, I cut out all the bits where I get emotional about this. For me now, sitting in this boat, maybe I feel actually a little bit easier to talk about this. Maybe that's a strange thing, it's true. But I've sat for tens of thousands of miles in this boat and in our sister ship that I took around the world looking out through the door and looking at the tiller in exactly the same way that Slocum describes, looking up from the cabin floor and looking out at the tiller. And with modern autopilots, you know, if you just lash the helm on a boat, it's just rigid, it's just there, it's just, just stuck in one, one position. But if you've got an autopilot on a boat, then the tiller is moving, the wheel is moving, and it doesn't take very much imagination to imagine that somebody is up there and somebody is steering the boat. And that's when Slocum realizes that somebody is on the boat. And at first, he has this 
this fright because he thinks, Jesus, someone's boarded the boat in the night. Like he must have been thinking of that. He must have been thinking about, you know, how exactly am I going to defend myself if someone tries to take my boat away from me? This is still a time in the late 1890s where pirates were a really serious problem. How serious a problem were they? Well, the boogeyman, which we all know, ooh, the boogeyman, you try and scare kids with that. That descends from Bougenese pirates, from basically Filipino pirates who were so feared that stories of them ended up back in the... Uh, in the bedrooms of small children and they were scared not by the boogie the boogie but by the boogie man the boogie man will come and get you so he must have already had that on his mind and i'm happy to understand that you know this might have just been all the kind of delirious thoughts of of, of this guy in this book from a hundred odd years ago but i'm saying to you when you're on a boat and when you're at sea they always say stranger things have happened at sea so when you're at sea that's where the strange things happen and what Slocum believes he saw, as accurately as he tells us about uh, the steamships that he passes, as accurately as he makes landfall, as accurately as he records the dates and the times of the things that happens to him, he says someone was stood at that wheel. And I'm happy to believe him, because I get to choose which version I want to believe. And I believe someone came and helped him. And why do I believe that? Because there's been too many damn times that I think someone's come and helped me. I'm not sure if you believe in ghosts or spirits or, or anything ethereal. Maybe you're someone that just believes in the concreteness of the world around us. I'm a, I'm a person of science. I need something to be proven. But they estimate that now in the history of mankind, if we're to do some basic maths, about 120 billion people have lived. And every single story that's passed down to us every mythology every tribe that we meet up with in the sahara in the uh in the in the amazon i'm sure the guys on north sentinel who we've never made contact with i'm sure they believe in spirits so we can say oh they don't exist no problem okay but it's a very common thing amongst humans and it's been a very common thing for about 120 billion humans so that's quite a lot of granted subjective evidence let's imagine for a second for a second that that is possible that at the moment it just lies somewhat outside of the science that we understand the science that we understand is dedicated towards the development of the technology which we have created in about the last hundred years remember slocum is dealing in a world of brass and iron of tallow and tar and wood and cotton very very basic things since joshua slocum's day we have pushed our technology in a particular direction and now we're pretty certain we've got everything stitched up and yet every lesson of history says that just around the next corner is going to be some massive revelation so all in the history of humankind we've had some kind of understanding there might be something else and then for about a hundred years we've decided no there isn't i don't know all i'm saying is that as a person of science room must be left to be proven wrong so my experience of being at sea is that events have transpired which are so freakishly coordinated 
that even if I put them to the test of random chance, of billions of random chances, and I'm just noticing a couple of ones that work out favorably to me, even if I do that, it's still very, very difficult to believe that there wasn't some other kind of force or spirit, or consciousness or whatever behind them. And I like to think that we're always worried about, oh, ghosts, they're going to come and get you, they're going to come and have you, they're going to be a problem for you. Maybe. There's some people that are like that in the world. But the majority of people that I meet in the world, like 99% of the people I meet in the world, they're awesome. They're kind. They'll try and help you. They'll try and lend a hand. They're there for excitement and adventure, and they want to be part of what's going on. So if someone's dead <laughs> and they're a seafarer, I don't know. I prefer to think of it that way. Because if I was to go out onto the ocean and it was just science, and it was just angles and degrees and millimeters and the carbon fiber composite percentages, densities, angles, that if it was just that, it'd be the most soulless, useless waste of my time. There has to be something else. I love the dolphins bounding along on the sun side of the boat. Maybe they understand what's going on, maybe they don't. Maybe they have joy, maybe they don't. But it seems that way to me. Maybe I've never been helped by some other something or other that came onto the boat, but it seems that way to me. And in that world, a bit like the life of Pi, I find magic, I find excitement, I find mystery, I find joy. And suddenly being out in an immense, endless, freezing tract of pitch black water will kill you just as part of its business. Suddenly being in that place doesn't seem so bad. Suddenly the lights inside the cabin bring warmth. Even though they're just electrons and photons and electricity and batteries, they bring happiness and they bring warmth. And the thought that at my darkest hour, a shaggy, old, whiskered, contrabandista might step aboard and help me out I'll take that and I think Slocum took that and I don't mind that he wants to tell us about it in this way and I thank him for it because I've looked out from exactly where I'm sat and on the sister ship of this vessel exactly where I'm sat and I've looked out at that tiller on nights where the boat's doing 20, 25, 30 33 knots and it's hooning down the front of waves and waves are bigger than office blocks and the boat's powering into them and all goes dark inside and you think Jesus Christ this is it this is the end and then she pulls her nose up up she comes out of the ocean and she sets off again at 20 knots and you can hear the waves smashing against the bottom of the boat and you can hear the back stays under 20 tons of load just humming and thrumming in the wind and you look out of that tiller you think, Jesus, <laughs> I hope there's someone here to help me. Because I'm not really sure right now I can help myself. What Slocum sees is the pilot of the Pinta. And there's a wonderful depiction of him looking up from the cabin. And this high-booted, tuniced, with a, a big belt around him, this big shaggy, whiskered, Spaniard phantom is there taking the wheel and Slocum's nervous 
and he starts to look up and check this guy out. And I don't know if you've ever actually had proper hallucinations from being ill. I have once. I got very, very sick once. Um, we were actually, we'd sailed from Hong Kong to Japan on the uh, tall ships race, Sail Osaka in 1997. We're on our way back. We came into Kagoshima and God knows what I'd eaten or what had happened to me, but I remember being in my bunk and I was all over the place and I really appreciate what's going on here. Slocum describes, and again, remember, he didn't have to tell us this. He didn't have to share this. He's meant to be trying to portray himself as like the best of the best. If this was like America's Cup interview on the BBC or something, they don't tell you where they've messed it up. They just tell you where they've got it right. So this entire thing, it'd been just kind of a lot easier if it just not even bothered. But he says, hey, you know, um, this happened to me and then I was getting these weird like thoughts like I thought that the careless draymen were throwing their their uh, their, their their boats down onto the, the spray but he says you'll smash your boats but you can't hurt the spray she is strong Slocum is the builder of the spray Slocum is the master of the spray. He's the owner of the spray. And he's setting off on something. And we see there that he has this unbelievable, unshakable belief in the strength of his vessel. And he has this wonderful drama playing out in front of him where the pilot of the Pint has come on board. After it's done, after things calm down and no doubt he sleeps through you could say okay well then that's when you know the delusion ends and whatever he says to my astonishment i saw now at broad day that the spray was still heading as i left her and was going like a racehorse columbus himself could not have held her more exactly on her course the sloop had made 90 miles in the night through a rough sea i felt grateful to the old pilot but i marveled some that he had not taken in the chip <laughs> And I got to say, when I was reading this and having not read it for like 10 years, I was laughing out loud. Like, again, if you've been at sea with these wonderful characters who are uh, on these boats, like, Slocum knows. Like, it's either a delusion or it's like some phantasm. But I don't think <laughs> either can like trim the jib or definitely drop the jib or anything else. And so we see again... Slocum's incredible sense of humor is like, well, I'm amazing in taking the jib. But the boat's done these massive miles through the night through a massive storm. And that's when you're at sea and you get this feeling of like there being something else which is carrying you along. And I don't want to hear that it's physics and it's hyd hydrodynamics and aerodynamics. I know all that stuff and it doesn't feel like that. It feels like someone with more experience and more skill has just helped you out. And why not? Why not think that? Because it makes it into something more than. And that is what we are. We're very simple, spiritual, energetic animals that are incredibly able to engage in creative and passion-filled adventures, push ourselves to the limit. And that's what it's about. And I will say this. When you listen to French sailors talking about their experience when they're doing the Vendée Globe, when they're doing these incredible races, they speak with passion, they speak about the sea in these near mystical tones and that is why offshore sailing has still got such a fantastic following in French, in France and in French speaking countries because in that language, which is already so passionate and, and so beautiful, they are able to talk about things and, and to bring in that ethereal other place. And we see that here in Joshua Slocum's book in 1900. 
and yet it seems to have died out and people are kind of a little bit oh you know well I don't really talk like that about things and but that's how it is and why not and of course we then find out that um, Slocum uh, is visited one more time by the the, the, the phantasm who says uh, he says um, then who should visit me again but my old friend of the night before this time of course in a dream you did well last night to take my advice said he and if you would I should like to be with you often on the voyage for the love of adventure alone. Finishing what he had to say, he again doffed his cap and disappeared as mysteriously as he came, returning, I suppose, to the phantom pinter. I awoke much refreshed, says Slocum, and with a feeling that I'd been in the presence of a friend and a seaman of vast experience. I gathered up my clothes, which by this time were dry, and then, by inspiration, I threw overboard all the plums in the vessel. You could say that it's a literary mechanism, and for those that don't know, my, my degree is actually linguistics. I have more than a little skill in being able to pull apart what's going on in a text. I know what's going on here. I know it from being a solo sailor. I know it from being a linguist and a writer. I've written hundreds of thousands of words in blogs uh, from uh, on board ship. I don't know. This part of this book speaks to me in a way and it allows me to understand a little bit more what I'm getting involved in. To go out onto the ocean on your own, to go out even in a small group with your, with your family, with your crew, whatever, and to feel that it's just you and nobody else, it's pretty lonely. It's nice sometimes to think there's something else. If you're a religious person, you've got your answer. If you're not a religious person, Maybe this is the kind of answer. Because I know that the sea will take anybody in a hot second if it gets a chance. But what if they're out there and can give you a hand once in a while? Maybe that's how that cotter pin doesn't fall out. Maybe that's why that sheet doesn't break at that moment. That's why the engine restarts when you really think it's not going to do. That's how that slip that nearly kills you, you finally catch yourself and you manage to get back onto the boat. I like thinking of sailing in this way. I'm going to continue to keep thinking of it in this way. And I, to my dying day, I will always look at this image of Slocum um, looking up at that contrabandista, the pilot of the Pinta, out, and I will look as I am now, out through this doorway, out at the tiller of one of these boats and think, there's nothing new in sailing. By my woolen socks and by my woolen hat, there's nothing new in sailing. The end of this chapter is uh, Slocum getting to Gibraltar. And he again has a fantastic way of, of discussing his interaction with people. That is Slocum's great skill. He has a fantastic uh, interaction with the, um, the doctor that comes on board in, uh, in Gibraltar. He's a, <laughs> he's a Brit, and uh, as a Brit, I understand exactly what he's saying. The, the doctor seems to have a problem with uh, the fact that he hasn't got a health certificate out of Horta. And uh, being a Brit, he's a little bit, um, well, he's got a stick up his ass, right? So uh, <laughs> he says that um, there was a row. Slocum has a row with this guy. He continues, that, however, was the very thing needed. If you want to get on well with a true Britisher, you must first have a juice of a row with him. I know that well enough, and so I fired away shot for shot as best I could. Well, yes, the doctor admitted at last. Your crew are healthy enough, no doubt, but who knows the diseases of your last point? 
And there, of course, Slocum's got him and the guy has to go ashore. <laughs> what certificate does he need? It's just him. Like, as long as he stood up, who else is there? So, I again, I love that. The... The, the details that Slocum's able to, to pull out and to, to share with us are just as rich and just as florid as, um, as anybody going into a port now would experience. And of course, then we've got the description of um, him being very well looked after in Gibraltar as he uh, then, I think, really makes a decision about what's going to happen next. Again, if I flick back to that, uh, that little uh, map, which is on page 35, he crosses the Atlantic, goes into Horta, goes into Gibraltar, and that then is where he turns and sets off. He's heading down the Atlantic, down towards South America. And that really is the beginning of when Slocum sails around the world. If you're going to do a circumnavigation, you have to start in one hemisphere and cross to the other hemisphere and do a certain amount of mileage until we can circumnavigate the Arctic Ocean through the Northwest Passage and the Northeast Passage. No true circumnavigation in terms of the rules we have now will ever start in the Southern Ocean. So you're going to start in the Northern uh, Hemisphere. You're going to go south. You're going to go south of the Three Stormy Capes. You're going to come back up and you're going to cross your outbound path. And that's what Slocum does. And that's what makes him a, uh, the first circumnavigator. But for us listening to and reading the book, this really now is where the story of Slocum sailing around the world in the first solo circumnavigation really begins. He's shook down the boat. He's got himself the phantasm of the pilot of the Pinta on board to help him along the way. He's thrown all the plums over the side of the boat. And now it's time to go sailing. I look forward to taking you through the next couple of chapters in the next one. Cheers. Right, well, I better get myself off this boat now. Oh my goodness. How's it out here? Ugh.